Today on Rebuilders, we cover a lot of ground. We do. We go deep into uh, the world post-World War II. Yeah. And uh, look at, I guess, what's changed in culture. Yeah. And the nature of individualism and how that has been changing. And we posit that there is a new individualism that has emerged in grey zone and that we may need to change tack to disciple. Yeah, it's a fascinating episode and and I guess a bit of a... um, an opening to a a bigger discussion that we're going to continue to have in coming weeks. So let's get into it. Yeah. Welcome to Rebuilders this week. My name's Mark and I'm starting because Daniel and Liddy want to talk about whether bananas are cloned and I don't want to talk (laughs) about that. (laughs) I don't see why not. I mean, it's a very interesting topic. Uh. Well, it is, it is, but we've got things to talk about today. But I did want to just- <laughs> Clone snack, bananas. Clone bananas. That, it can be another, yet another Rebuilders sub, sub podcast. Um, but I did want to thank, um, we've just had some coffee. Yes, uh, we Provided have. by, beans provided by some listeners who, who from Sandals Church in California, who yes. not only, they didn't just send it, they turned up and visited us and we yeah. had pastries. Yeah, it was um, really great to meet them all. Uh, so thank you, Sandals Church. Yes. You provide the beans, I extracted them. And yeah, and I got the milk out of the fridge. So teamwork, <laughs> teamwork in the <laughs> kingdom of God. I had a cup of tea. Oh, you did, yeah. Yep, yeah. Like a good coffee hater. <laughs> coffee <laughs> hater. <laughs> and a shout out to all our you, you, United Kingdom listeners <laughs> who have tea. Also fancy a cup of tea. What tea did you have? Uh, Assam Bold. Mm. Oh. I'm all about the Assam Bold. Assam Bold. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you feel more bold now for this? <laughs> yeah, every, for every podcast, I have my Assam Bold. Wow. And that's why you get the pep. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. We can what say a, hello to our, to our listeners in. Is it Assam's a state in India? Is that oh, correct? Okay. It's I, a part yeah, of India. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, yes, northeast, northeastern India. Well, hello to. Those in the Inland Empire of California who provide these beans and to our fine listeners in the state of Assam. Yeah. Just east of Bhutan. Well, now that we have greeted our Mm. various (laughs) listeners, uh, let's get into it for today. A while ago, you, if you've been um, listening for a while, you will know that we started talking about what does it look like to disciple the contemporary self, Mm. Um, explored a little bit about neoliberalism, um, and how that has impacted us in the church um, and has impacted the walk of discipleship. Today, we are returning to that. And mm. you are, Mark, going to lead us in by talking about the fact that we need to understand the order mm. that we are in. So tell us a little bit about what you mean by that. Yeah. So we live in orders. Very famously, George H. Bush proclaimed uh, and gave much ammunition to conspiracy theorists when he proclaimed at the beginning of the 90s as the Soviet Union fell that we're in a new world order. Uh, he gave a famous speech. Uh, and I think he was right that there was a new order breaking in the world. Mm. And it's an order which I think has lasted about 30 years. And uh, I did quote in our series previously um, a quote from Vaughan Roberts, uh, Vaughan Dash, I think it's James Vaughan Roberts who wrote a book for Caring for the Neoliberal Soul. Mm-hmm. I could get a fact check on that. Um and uh, he basically talked about that 30 years ago, the kind of persons who were coming to him for counselling sessions changed. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's really important to note that. So the kinds of people that we are have been changed by this 30-year order that has existed in the world. Yeah. What's an order? An order is when a dominant ideology, worldview, set of practices, plausibility structures uh, take over a society or, or rise to prominence in society. Uh, regular listeners will also know another concept uh, uh, that I've spoken about, the grey zone, which mm. is when an order comes to an end, an old order is passing, a new order is emerging. And so I think part of the need to understand what an order is uh, is something which will help us then uh, learn how to disciple people because understanding the cultural context that people are in is really, really important. Mm. Now, if you're going to go and be you know, a missionary in, in Assam uh, or the Inland Empire of California, mm. you would need to know the culture that exists in those particular places. Now, what's unique about 
I think the developed 21st century world we're in is culture is moving so rapidly because we're moving through these different orders. Yes. So you may have Japanese culture, but then you've also got how Japan is affected by various orders in the world at yeah, this time. Yeah. Um, so what I want to do is I just want to dig in a little bit you know, and what I've been doing heaps and heaps of reading is trying to understand some of the structural changes that have happened in the world because mm-hmm. I think structural changes uh, alongside changes in ideas are really what shapes the contemporary person. And I think all of us feel that something is changing in people and to push into renewal, like deep renewal, mm. is another one I've just chucked out, a new term, <laughs> deep renewal, uh, where it's not just the Holy Spirit moving in some services, but actually that is the Holy Spirit bringing new life where the actual re- renewal in society occurs. Yes, which is what Robin Lim talked about last yeah, week. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so to go back and understand our, our part of it too is I think we're good on history from the past and I think particularly the West is really obsessed with the history from just in between the wars and World War II. Yes. Um, and often we don't understand the, the, really the history of the last 30 years. So effectively we lived in a very different world order uh, in the last 30 years and I want to just talk about some of the shape of that, uh, but I want to talk about even some stuff that's shaped us since 2008. But to do that, I just want to just quickly paint a picture of um, the economic order since – 1945. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, okay. So, okay. Okay. So really the world goes into an absolute crisis with World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, but also very much in the living memory was also the Great Depression. Yes. And so, you know, one of the sort of dominant ideologies and orders that takes over um, emerges from the thought of a – who was originally a bit of a young whippersnapper around the halls of power in London, um, uh, emerging economist called J.M. Keynes who was actually part of a artistic bohemian set uh, that hung around Bloomsbury, also known as the Bloomsbury set, people like mm-hmm. Virginia Woolf. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was hanging out with these sort of artists and, and thinkers and bohemians and they saw that they were birthing a new kind of world and yes. that they were doing that through paint and through art and so on. Um, he was quite a bit different in the sense that he was felt very much at home in this world, but actually his field was economics. Mm. And uh, Keynes had actually studied at Cambridge and I think he studied mathematics, but his intelligence meant that increasingly he was used um, by the British government. And his vision really of economics was one which he wanted to uh, change how people thought about the world. Mm-hmm. And so he had this idea that in a sense that the economy or money was almost a sort of figment of people's imagination and what gave it its truth was actually government putting particular rules around it. Yeah, yeah. This is in contrast to other people who believe that money was almost what pre-existed government, if that makes sense. So you have okay. money that exists out there and we can trade. And, uh, you know, you very much get that thinking today with Bitcoin. If you think yes. about Bitcoin, people believe that, hang on, if we can just get rid of all this government regulation and you've literally got Bitcoiners who are trying to do sort of almost sort of libertarian anarchist communities in like islands in yeah, Central yeah, yeah. America where it's just all Bitcoin. So if we can get back to the almost the Garden of Eden is the unfettered exchange of money yeah. and, and trade between people and that's how we're going to get back to almost a sort of Garden of Eden experience. Interesting. Keynes actually, you know, wrote a book about money and said, you know, this, this, is, this is false, that actually it's the government uh, which gives legitimacy to money. Mm-hmm. The go- government sets currency. And so he, he advocated and also what happened during the war is that almost all of the economies, in, you know, particularly involved in the war, the government just had to run everything. So they were wartime economies. Yes. And this saw the potential of the government to actually control the economy in ways that people hadn't thought of earlier. And so coming out of the Second World War, you had – America ascendant. Mm-hmm. And also some of these ideas were um, put into place by FDR, who was the US president, uh, uh, and really as these sort of reparative things to actually get out of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called the New Deal. And uh, this order sort of created an economy that was very industrial. Um, they had welfare elements. Mm-hmm. This is when things like the National uh, Health Service, the NHS, when Britain was created. And so you had the world coming out of the sort of chaos of the 1930s, the 1940s with the war, and you had this period where America was dominant industrially in the world and uh, a lot of the world was repairing. The European empires were passing but still in this kind of economic ascendant position in some places. Mm-hmm. Um, and really this order is, you know, what we think about when we think many people look back on this and see this as a sort of high point of the West economically where there was high employment, 
people could be provided more by things by the government. There was jobs in factories. Yeah. Globalization, as we understand it today, hadn't taken off. Um, and so this was this period which really lasted until the sort of 1970s. But the problem is what you had in the 1970s, you had the problem that for the economy to keep going, you need production to keep happening, the economy, you know, to keep growing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this began to run a bit of asunder in that time. A lot of this was around energy. Uh, you had a thing called the oil crisis. And because of the West's sort of alliance to Israel, particularly around some of the wars that happened in the Middle East, like the Six-Day War, mm-hmm. um, the OPEC nations, which were the oil-producing cartel, many of them uh, Middle Eastern countries and Islamic countries who were upset about the West's support of Israel and supported the Arab nations against Israel, began to raise the price of oil. Mm-hmm. And this had a tremendous effect. Uh, a number of other things happened during this time. Women entered into the workforce in higher numbers. Uh, jobs became more scarce. And, and also industry started to uh, slow down. Mm. And you had the emergence of countries like Japan, uh, making cars cheaper and so on. Uh, and everything began to change. And so you very much had this sort of change in the world. And so that order, which existed really from sort of 1945 to the early 1970s, um, ended. Yes. And a new order sort of began to be first imagined. And then a different kind of thinker, you know, a guy called Friedrich Hayek, who'd actually uh, lived during the 30s and had been a bit of a, a rival to Keynes. And he almost had that original vision that that actually trade and the world as a global marketplace was really what needed to be preserved. He saw uh, that the high point of the world was that period just before sort of First World War when the world was trading, the French called it the Belle Epoque, the beautiful period mm-hmm. uh, where Europeans seemed to exist in this very high level life, you yes. know? And uh, a lot of that they saw was because of the free trade that happened in the world. Now, a counterpoint to that is also that was on top of a lot of colonialization and (laughs) Britain had, you know, yes, it had that trade, but also it was because it had this trading block. There was an Mm. empire of countries where they were taking resources and so on. But really, he wanted to sort of bring that back. And he had the opposite thought to Keynes, which was basically uh, we need to not have a strong government. We need Mm -hmm. to – that almost the market is this almost – mythical, not mythical, but almost mystical thing that we just need to, we, it's so complex we can't understand what a global market would be and we need to let it run free. Mm. And um, also that it's the world's smartest mechanism for processing information. So the the market will actually set the price of things instead of the government setting the price of things. Right, okay. Now also around this time, uh, you know, you start to see significant stagnation in this, the communist world, particularly mm-hmm. the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union entered into its period of stagnation, mm-hmm. had a lot of very old leaders, geront- gerontocracy, uh, people like Brezhnev. Um, and uh, you had people come in with a very different radical vision of the world. So 1979 is a really pivotal year. We've got people like Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan coming in, mm. and they begin to really embrace these thoughts around people like Hayek. Hayek had this a uh, group of thinkers, the M- Mount Pe- Pellerin Society, uh, uh, and these thinkers came together and they began to create think tanks and they had a much more libertarian view of the world that, okay. that you know, the government shouldn't be as, as involved as much. But interesting, this is when they started to have this vision of almost a global community and this is when things like the World Trade Organization, things like the European Union, you know, these ideas began to be birthed that, yes, we've got nations, but nations fight with each other and people yes. get too tribal. So we need these globalized um, entities where people can trade. And if there's trade, there'll be freedom. Yes. If there's okay. trade and free markets, there'll be free people. And so you very much hear this idea in Ronald Reagan. You begin to hear this idea in George H. Bush. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is when the new era begins to get born. So it's groundwork's being laid during the 1980s. And part of this too was cutting back on the 70s were really marked in that grey zone bit. I think the 70s were a bit of a grey zone. Yeah. And tremendous industrial uh, action. So lots of unions having strikes. Yeah. Yeah. You see this in Britain, mines are closed. You see this in Australia, New Zealand, all over the world. Uh, tremendous sort of trade unionism uh, sort of took off and strikes. And you know, there's a period where Britain, I think they sort of like they went to a four day work week almost to sort of deal with this. But then this new period is born and this new period very much is really around economics coming into every element of life. Yes. This is where neoliberalism really begins and neoliberalism is a term which describes this economic era. And so 
Neoliberalism, um, you know, essentially is this uh, a vision of the world which is based on global trade, the world's being this place where people can move around, free trade, free movement of people, uh, uh, pulling back of regulation, particularly holding back banks and so yes. on. And a number of the um, sort of banking regulations, such as like the Glass-Steagall Act and these things, which were put in place back in the Great Depression to stop banks doing what happened in the Great Depression, mm-hmm. they are slowly pulled back. And so you begin to have this uh, very different vision of the world where companies like start to downsize. Who are the people who are not efficient? Uh, I remember at the time that here in our state of Victoria, mm. uh, basically the local government said in every area there's one high school we can get rid of because we just haven't got yeah. efficient teachers and schools yes. and they closed one down in every sort of school district. Um, but that sort of went throughout the entire world. And mm. this was a vision which interestingly captured both the left and the right. Gary Gersel says in his book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, that uh, a political order has dominance when even its enemies begin to operate on its terms. Mm -hmm. So one really interesting thing is that you had conservative figures like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher bringing this economic vision. But then really what you also had was it was really slammed dunk. They did the alley-oop and the slam dunk was done by people like Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. And Bill Clinton ch- completely changed left politics uh, to uh, other people like Gerhard Schroeder and so on, changed left politics to uh, socially liberal, but in a sense, this also economically liberal. And I mean the economically neoliberal. Sure. So all of a sudden, the Democratic Party in the US was f- embraced by Wall Street. Yeah. Um, they pursued a more liberal version of life. So, you know, you've got. Uh, uh, Bill Clinton talking about, you know, he smoked dope in college and, you know, obviously got things like Monica Lewinsky and he's playing a saxophone and so on. So you've got the classic liberal version of life. Saxophones, sorry, liberal. Saxophones and sunglasses, you know, it's just, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, um, and then in Britain you have someone like Tony Blair, again, who creates New Labour, mm. very similar vision. You know, he's got Oasis coming around to 10 Downing Street and so on. And, and, you know, this is, this is the order that like free markets, but then also sort of freeze, like pulling back on social mores of the past, if that makes sense. Yes. Now, this all comes to us a tremendous crisis. And we've talked about some of these crises before, but the real big crisis is 2008 when you have the global financial crisis. And this is when I think the neoliberal order begins to run asunder. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pause there because we're going to come back to that period and how yes. things have changed since then. Because yep. this is a lot of the craziness people see in the world. Like a lot of people talk about what happened in 2016 and the yes. world changing. I think you can actually go back to eight years earlier to 2008 is when really this stuff started to begin. But uh, I'll just pause there. So that's a sense of trying to understand the order that we're in. And I'll bring back the threads too. Remind me to bring back the threads of Hayek and Keynes and their competing visions later on. But yeah. Well, I've just sketched out a very average looking timeline here based on everything that you just shared. Um, one thing, like I, just to clarify. Yes. When you were talking about that that change that happened um, sort of 1970s, that grey zone 1970s to 1979-ish, would you say in a really rudimentary kind of way it's like there was this sense of the world as almost like compartmentalised countries, which in, yeah. you know, you look at a, a political map and that's, that's yes. how the world is represented. Yes. But um, this move towards like a, a global economy kind of, um, got a uh, an eraser and sort of a, yes. is is a yeah. kind of erasing the the borders. Yes. So yes. there's this there's this sense that we're not we're not uh, relegated to our own locations. We're actually mm. you know mm. we're able to move around. Mm. Um, we are one global people. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so the, the globalization thing is is a huge part of all this. And yeah. what's really interesting is Keynes originally like in the in the twenties wasn't. You know, later on, he the, so there's tariffs, right? Tariffs are trade barriers. Uh-huh. So basically, if I'm gonna, if you're a country and I'm a country and I'm going to import coffee beans, mm-hmm. you know, you put a tariff on it. I've got yes. to pay you, you know, to yeah. protect your local coffee bean producers. Early on, Keynes and what they called the free traders. So these yes. were people who early on. So this vision existed for a long time before mm-hmm. it got global preeminence. Um, they would said they would literally say free love and free trade. 
Interesting. So they literally, the, the Bloomsbury set, um, had this vision of, um, you know, they're all sleeping around with each other and in many ways their sort of sexual ethics look a lot what is dominant now. Yes. Um, Keynes would change his idea on tariffs, but it's just worth marking the fact that early on this vision of uh, free trade in the world and free love and no borders and then no borders between in, in terms of monogamy yes. was actually linked to part of their vision, which is fascinating, I yeah, find. Yeah. Um, so um, you're 100% right. And you think in, what also changes when the Soviet Union falls was before that, half the world was divided between communism and, and, mm. and de- liberal democracies. So once that border is erased, you know, all of a sudden you've got all these new creation of these countries, Central Asia, Baltics, Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera, in the world. And a lot of new countries are birthed at that period, mm. East Timor, you yes. know. So uh, it's like these nations are able to be birthed because then they're sort of joining these big trade organisations. Yes. Now, one of the huge things that changes the world that is is historical moment is the advocacy for China, which had not, it had repressed its, its um, uh, democratic uprising at Tiananmen mm-hmm. Square, um, but the, Bill Clinton particularly pushing China to join the World Trade Organization. Yeah, okay. And that changed things because all of a sudden you had someone who then came into that that dynamic, which was a significant, which that would set the path that we're on to now. Yes. Where it enabled China to significantly compete with mm-hmm. the West. But the belief was we will let you come in because we have an ideological belief that it's going to make you like us. So China's going to come in because yes. the, the ideological belief was free trade will lead to free people, that capitalism or you know this form of neoliberal capitalism will lead you to, to get rid of communism and embrace democracy. Yes. That's why they did it. But it has not played out like that. Yeah. In fact, it's the opposite. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Was that, a, was that an intentional thing, yes. do you think? Yes. Yeah, okay. So, 100%. Right. Um, this, is, this was an ideological belief of these people. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why they did it. So that, yeah, interesting. And also Soviet Union. So, you know, you had this period of Russia um, going through this and all of the big companies came in. So a lot of, you know, we did our episode, what, last week or two weeks ago on Prigozhin and the oligarchs. Yes. Mm. The oligarchs emerge at this time. So people like Roman Abramovich, you know, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, these people come into this vacuum of all these state-owned enterprises in Russia and these oligarchs buy them up. And Russia just goes through this insane, like, you know, it's like capitalism on methamphetamines, yeah. you know, which people actually look back now and partly what's happened in Russia is a reaction against mm. that. I'm also, I mean, I, I don't know if it's entirely relevant, but it's something that stood out to me. The role of the arts in sort of catalyzing these moments of, of change, like yes. thinking back to what you were talking about um, with the Bloomsbury set. Mm. Um, and I even think uh, like before World War One, mm. yeah, like no, post-World War One like the Roaring Twenties and all yes, of that. Um, yes, yes, Yeah, what kind of how, – how, do, how does – it feels like culture change is often um, – uh, often comes off the back of like some a movement in the arts. Mm. Yeah. I would say there's an interplay between the two. Yeah. You know, so particularly as the modern world begins, you know, and, and okay, let me go back one step. If you look at the West, you've got this enlightenment project based around science and rationality. Yes. And, you know, that's often how the West is seen. But always, almost since the beginning, you've got the, the like, A-side, the mainstream Starbucks chain, mm. and you've always got this B-side of the bohemian hipster coffee shop scene. But yeah. both are equally part of the West. You've got the yes. French-English very uh, uh, sort of rational stream, mm. but then you've got this very German romantic stream. So yes. let me give you an example, like Mary Shelley, you know, is hanging out on things like Lake Geneva with her very bohemian friends and they write this story called Frankenstein. They were yes. challenged to write a story at night. They're in, I think they're in a storm. She writes Frankenstein. Frankenstein's this story of, you know, Frankenstein creating this monster yes. and it's technology. So there's there's been this critique of it's like two two lines of music in in a symphony in the west it's both sides the west is this imperial pushing forward rationalist thing but then also it's this anti-imperial uh uh, bohemian thing is equally much as part of it so you're 100 right in the in the 20s you see um part of it's structural as well i think that Mm -hmm. you have a kind of uh 
early attempt, again, because the Keynesian thing hadn't completely taken over. So what happened after World War One? there was this period where there's reparations in Germany. Yes. Germany was struggling. Yeah. Uh, America began to emerge in the world. Um, Britain was still, you know, at that point, the transition was happening, but didn't realize it. So you had this period where it was this real modern, early modernism. You've yes. got, you know, Picasso and you've got um, modernist music, John Cage, you know, these people you've got, uh, yeah, you know, even like it's interesting, like Greenwich Village in New York. Yes. Many of the lifestyles that we see now were in embryo back in the 1920s at that mm. point in time. So you can find them everywhere in the story. Um, uh, you can go back to Lord Byron and all these people. So it's, yeah, you're right. It's always there. And often it'll pop up at different times when different yeah. structural things will happen. Well, I mean, I was even thinking about the way that you were describing Bill Clinton and and almost like that move towards those bohemian kind yes, of um, yes. lifestyle things are uh, almost like legitimizing yes. or like making a bid towards the other, yes, you know? Yes, yes, yeah. totally, yeah. Yeah, wow. C- can I just mark that too? You like can. I think for listeners too, those two streams are really important, not, not the two A and B of, of modernism, uh, sorry, of, of Western thought, but economic liberalism and social liberalism. Just those two streams are very important in this story. Now, the church has talked a lot about econ- oh, sorry, social liberalism. Yeah. Rightly, that's fine. I've done, I've done other places. But often the other side of that, economic liberalism, is not spoken about the effect that it's had. So I'm trying to sort of rectify that here because there's a closer relationship than people have yeah. recognised. Right. Well, shall we move on to the yeah. next, next point? Do you want to explore the notion yes. of – First individualism. Okay. So to understand where we're going to go and talk about the kind of individualism that emerges during uh, this period of the last 30 years. Yes. Um, I want to first talk about what's called the first individualism. Mm. So the first individualism is really, you can sort of go back to say the 18th century to see the emergence of contemporary individualism. Mm-hmm. What was happening then was you had a transition from a very rural driven feudal society where it was agricultural yes. and people stayed in place. They may be, in, say, in Britain, they lived in a parish in the countryside. They went to the local parish church, maybe uh, worked for a, a lord of a manor or whatever. And all of a sudden you have this gigantic big first beginning change of an economic change that happens in society. Mm. Um, in Italy, in, in the medieval period, you had um, this, this creation of uh, these things called uh, the bunker. Mm-hmm. which meant benches in, in Italian, which is where we get the word bank from. Hmm. And you see the emergence of a financial system which then goes into Northern Europe, into, into Holland and these places, into Britain, and the modern world begins. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden what this does is it creates social movement. So someone can all of a sudden not just be part of the landed gentry or aristocracy, someone can make money themselves, They can, and this begins to change the social order. So the mm-hmm. order begins to change as people move from the countryside into the cities. Yeah. This gives people more freedom. Uh, uh, you know, women still didn't have the vote and still faced a lot of, um, uh, uh, you know, restriction, but they had more freedom than they had 100 years earlier. So you, this is where you see the, the growth of these cities, Amsterdam, London, and you see that there is this social movement and mobility and even freedom of thought that people begin to have. Mm. So this is the first individualism. How do you uh, deal with a situation when the church had primarily been locked into a system of feudalism Mm -hmm. and it had parishes and there were parish records where someone would be born and they would die in that area? And there were people on the edge of that, sailors and stuff who moved around, soldiers, mercenaries, whatever. But it was very set in place. Yes. Um, and uh, then you had the emergence of, of this new individualism. Now, some of the stuff we've talked about here, particularly what you see is some of the first great awakenings like Wesley and so on, mm-hmm. where they create these discipleship structures like societies and classes midweek and the emergence of a lot of the free churches, which emerged from the Protestant Reformation. Uh, but some of the genius of that, that moment is there's a move of the Holy Spirit, but there's also an equal move coming behind where genius, you know, I think it was Wesley's genius, then created, people like the Moravians created spaces where people could pursue their faith 
uh, and also as part of this new autonomy and freedom they have as individuals. Yeah, yeah, okay. So Wesley would have midweek these these society meetings in London where different people from different places could gather. Now, also there was a form of globalisation at that time, mm-hmm. right? So what you see in, in London and places like that is this massive emergence of a new social structure where we went from this cha- great chain of being, mm. which is how the medieval world described itself, from God down to the king, all the way down to the lowest peasant. It was this great hierarchical chain. All of a sudden that starts to get messed up as the economy changes. And Carl Polanyi wrote a book called The Great Transformation about you know this story. And all of a sudden there's new movement. And, and how do people, and secularism comes at that moment. So with great structural changes also often comes secularism. Mm-hmm. Enlightenment, rationalism, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So what the church does at that time is creates a lot of these intermediate institutions that are in between the individual and then the big entities like government or empire. Okay. That could be unions, coffee houses in, in Britain were huge, yeah. societies. There wasn't just the societies that Wesley created. There was the, there was the Royal Society that looked at science mm-hmm. in, in, in London. So all these intermediate groups, friendly societies in that space. Now, what's interesting is most of our church structures – are still responding to that first secularism, as that first individualism. individualism. Yeah. So, small groups. Yeah. <laughs> the idea that people are going to come to the, your local church. Mm. Uh, all of these ideas, missionary societies, all of this emerges from a particular social arrangement that happens in response to the first individualism. So that's the first individualism. Just to okay. get that, because we need to understand that yes. first. But my big point on that is. Most of our church structures are responding to, to a, an, an environment that emerged in the 18th century. Yeah. And so things have changed mm. since then. So if there is a first individualism, I'm going to ask you whether there is indeed a second There is a second individualism as articulated by people like the German, German sociologist Ulrich Beck, the Canadian uh, sociologist or philosopher Charles Taylor writes about this in his book on, multi- on uh, multiculturalism and I think also Zygmunt Bauman writes a book on this, I think it's called The Individualized Society, that there is a second kind of individualism mm-hmm. that begins to emerge. And I think this is the kind of – I think it started earlier, but I think it really comes to the fore in this 30-year period. Yeah. So I think what, what Vaughan um, – um, Rogers, I think I called him Vaughan Roberts before. Vaughan Rogers is, I've got to get his name. Bruce. 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 What's his full name? Yeah, I think it's Vaughan Rogers. Bruce, Bruce Vaughan Rogers is articulating. Rogers Vaughan. Oh, I've got it completely Vaughan. wrong. Bruce <laughs> Rogers Vaughan. My mother's maiden name is Vaughan. I should know this. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Bruce Rogers Vaughan. When he's articulating that things have changed and the kind of person that is now coming to him is not the kind of person that was coming to him 30 years ago, he mm-hmm. is describing the second individualism. Second individualism is marked more by um, uh, if the first individualism was, hey, we've moved to London now, a group of people from all over the country, and we've come together as a society, and now we live in West Ham. And where the people from West Ham were part of this Methodist society or that coffee house or this or yeah. the Royal Society, there's still an identity. Yes. Whereas what the second individualism is, you know, you decide the identity. Mm. The identity is not coming from the intermediate group that you're part of. It's coming from yourself. There's an expansion of movement. So the 18th century first individualism saw mobility begin to come, but this is an expansion of mobility. This is the person who – yeah, I lived in London two years, but now I'm living in Buenos Aires or, you know, I moved here, I moved there, I'm changing friends. You know, there's a much more higher level of social mobility. But what's really interesting is the second individualism is marked by, whereas the first one was like defining yourself against or moving away from the feudal system, the second individualism is moving away from the intermediate social structures of the first individualism. Hmm. See, I grew up in church, but I don't do that anymore. Mm. My parents were part of trade unions, but now I'm working for this bank. Uh, yeah, we grew up in that little town, but now, you know, I just got, had to get out. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs. I've now moved to this suburb, blah, blah, blah. So, it, it, and that's really, really interesting. Now, this has had huge implications for the church, huge implications yeah. for the church. And I don't think many people have realized this. This is why, for many of the pastors listening, it's so frustrating to get people to commit to stuff. <laughs> This is why there is increasingly for churches under the boomer demographics uh, such a rapid turnover of people. 
This is why you'll have people who seem to change their mind and be flaky, who deconstruct their faith quickly, who don't want to grow up in the denomination that they have left the denomination they grew up with and gone to another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is why uh, you know, we've seen so much, I think, movement in the church. And the church is reactively being responded to this. So if you think about, you know, church is trying to offer these people something um, in response to what's going on. But I think I don't think we've fully articulated uh, that response or truly understood it. So mm-hmm. I would say some of the best responses to this, and again, too, you know, this is stuff I've been part of, we've talked about it here on Rebuilders, is a realization that individualism individualism has intensified. I think we've shorthand, I think we've talked about this in a way without talking about it by talking about generations. So people say, oh, millennials or Gen Z, or they used to be talking about Gen X. Yes, but it's really about the second individualization. Yeah. If that makes sense. So you're saying it's not necessarily- um particular generations it's more the um the order yes so the people who happen to grow up and be formed by that order versus like there's just something magically in the water that if you're under 37 you you, you drank yeah whatever so i think it's less yes there are generational effects but there'd be people who are born of that generation in i don't know Central African Republic, who might not be shaped by that. Sure. Just because not everyone in the world at a certain time was shaped by that. Yes. It's actually you were raised in particular orders and you've imbibed those values and dealt with those structural realities of that time. Yes. So I think that the two best ways we've tried to respond to this is formation, spiritual formation. Mm -hmm. We've realized that the world is not neutral in a sense. So you could argue, particularly in the post-war era, that last order that I spoke about, that sort of Keynesian era, that, yeah, there was a general understanding, say in Australia, that not everyone went to church and there was a percentage of people who did. But in a sense, the general culture had some sort of Christian understanding and maybe they'd mock you a bit for going to church, but it's not going to terribly deform you in your faith, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Mm. There's been an increased realisation, I think, in the last 10, 15 years of just how much the culture is deforming. At first it was like, if you go back to, I think, to the 80s and the 90s, beginnings of the church growth movement and even some of the emerging church stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, it was like, or even missional church, it's like, oh, the culture's changed. We've got to change for them to reach them. Yes. But then it became, hang on, we're getting changed. Yes. You know, and I wrote about this in Disappearing Church. So some of the solutions I suggested and many others and friends and stuff was, well, almost there's two elements. One is like a prophetic thing. Hey, guys, this is happening. You need to be aware of this and not do this. Yeah. And secondly, here's some formational habits that we can do and sort of counter formational habits. Mm-hmm. Again, good stuff. Um, so I think that has defined the second individualism. Okay, I'll just drop this here and then I'll let you let you guys make a comment. <laughs> I think that the, the, the last order really, and again, too, as, as I've said, this gray zone, so this overlaps, it goes from really, I think, sort of like maybe 79 or maybe 91, but I think things start to really change in about 2016. Okay. Any thoughts before I move on? I'm just <laughs> dropping so much information. Yeah. <laughs> so what you're saying, it's it feels like it. this isn't just um, – as we look at these kind of different orders, it's not just uh, a change in the kind of culture or the the way we see the world. It's actually um, changing, fundamentally changing how we see ourselves and, mm. and our, how we understand who we are and how we, I suppose, our sense of identity. Is mm. that is that true? Yes. Yes. Okay. So the order informs how you see yourself. Right, right. Mm. Your identity is linked to the order around you. And one of the great tasks of discipleship in biblical faith is to root your identity in Christ, not in the order around you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, so the neoliberal self is the self that is entrepreneurial. Yeah. (laughs) It is, you don't need an intermediate institution to tell you who you are. You can discover yourself. Mm. Um, and it's self-creative, it's self-expressive, mm. it's you do you, you know, it's, it's all this stuff. It's, it's the truth is within you. These are all the values. So the vision of the world in the neoliberal order is that in a sense, yeah, there's countries and all this sort of stuff, but here's this global world and you can just move around it. The world's your playground. 
And whether you succeed or fail, that's up to you. Mm-hmm. And and this we'll go here a little bit next, but I'll just prequel this. So if you fail in an intermediate time, if, if you're in a trade union in 1968 mm-hmm. and the company shuts down your mine or whatever, it's you, your community that's part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul Mason uh, in his book Post Capitalism talks about, you know, he grew up in the north of England and he talked about, you know, there was this community, community solidarity that they felt. That there's a sense there were like the Methodist churches and there was the pubs and there was the unions and there was the schools. And there's a sense of like, yeah, we're working class and it's hard and it's tough, but we're connected. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have the money, but we're connected to each other. It then talks about returning to the town he grew up in and it's like, vape shops or something and mm. you know the churches are tiny and the shop you know the community the, the unions are shadow of itself and that sense is broken down that changes how you see yourself mm. you know you, you and that has happened in our time and if you think about it so much of church around community and what we're trying to build there's lots of people realizing this and here's how we build community and even the idea of the word all of a sudden in the 90s all of a sudden these churches start calling themselves community churches yes that's a sort of reactive understanding that, hang on, something's changing here. Mm, No one in 1948 had to call himself a community church because community just happened, Yes, you know, for a lot of people. Um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, with this in mind, we've talked about first individualism, second individualism. So are you kind of indicating in 2016 that you think there's been a move to perhaps a third individualism, another form of individualism? Yes. Okay, I think we are moving into a new individualism called crisis individualism. (laughs) (laughs) Watch out. (laughs) Crisis individualism. Okay. Okay, so I recently watched, actually when I was flying back from the UK, I watched on the plan. I'd never seen it before, the movie A Few Good Men. I think it was originally a play. Is it Aaron Sorkin? Uh, I think so. Oh, Daniel's uh, on it. Daniel's on it. You Googling away. Just tell me if it's yeah. So it's the uh, classic yeah, screenplay about Aaron Sorkin. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it was a play originally in the movie. Anyway, fascinating for a couple of reasons. What year is that movie? Uh, 92. 92, the beginning of the period we're talking about. Yeah. So basically, the the, the premise of the play or the the movie is uh, it's about an incident at the Guantanamo Bay. Interesting, a place that would come into much prominence about ten years later. Uh, and uh, a soldier's been killed because he's breaking the rules of this marine unit who are protecting America from the threat of communism mm-hmm. is how the Jack Nicholson officer character sees it. Yes. And so there's these courtroom interactions where you've got Jack Nicholson who almost symbolizes the post-war order, Cold yeah. War. He's protecting. And then you've got the new order emerging, which is Tom Cruise, always a hot shot. <laughs> it's always a hot shot. Demi Moore, uh, it was, you know, in a brat pack, coming into maturity over brat pack years. But they're like the new America, the new order. Mm. And and what happens is this guy's been killed and he's been killed because he's broken internal sort of army, uh, sorry, marine sort of core behaviour. And effectively what the Jack Nicholson character is saying is, yes, we have to do some bad stuff and we do bad stuff because there's communism out there and we're the line on the wall and we're the ones who enable you to have your nice little life inside here. Yeah. But you hate us and you're disgusted by us, but you need us. We're the monster you need is yeah. his argument. Yeah. Classic Cold War, previous era thinking. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the sort of Tom Cruise, Demi Moore. They're lawyers. They're activists. <laughs> they're pursuing justice. And they're sort of like, no, 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 we're moving into a new world now. This is me summarising the movie. Yes, yes. The, uh, we're moving into a new world now. We don't need to think like that anymore. What you've done is unjust. And your world of, of communism versus us and this dangerous world, that's gone. So it's almost about the erasure of a border at the beginning of the era of globalisation. Yeah. What so marks the movie as well is... Oh, sorry, it's, yeah, so it's almost like we're going to go down this new direction as a country and as a world. It's going to be okay isn't it? (laughs) Um, And what's also interesting about the movie is it's literally Jack Nicholson, Demi Moore, Tom Cruise all yelling at each other and it's just marked by this incredible sense of energy and ego and bravado. Like It is so like almost that sort of peak of America at its absolute height. September 11th's not there. It's a unipolar moment. Soviet Union's been defeated. Watching that now, it seems so contrasting to the spirit that you see in popular culture at the moment. Yeah. 
The West Wing, I think, is also Aaron Sorkin, isn't it? Yep. That yes. is also, the, if you watch that now, it almost seems so anachronistic of these super idealistic, ego-filled up-and-comers, right? If you look now, we've moved from this sort of 90s period, and that's that's a, a slice of Americana, but just think of, you know, Cool Britannia and, you know, I mentioned Tony Blair and Spice Girls, and it was almost this very sort of like, we're chasing money, consumerism, ego, this very sort of almost assertive sexuality in the world. Mm. And it was super confident. Yes. If you look at things now, the the, the mood has sh- shifted significantly. You'll hear the word anxiety more, fragility more. You'll hear about the things that can harm us. This sense of confidence, particularly I think in the Anglosphere, has evaporated. Mm. Uh, you see in Europe as well. And increasingly, the way that the individual talks about themselves is less about, um, oh, I'm going to go and do all these things, to increasingly, like, here's the things I can't do because of these external forces. Yes. So it's like the locus of control has moved from internal to out, uh, external. external. Yeah. So 2008, why is this happening? So in 2008, neoliberalism ends, it moves into what I would say is a crisis neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. 2008 happens and you have the collapse of the banks because, again, too, there was a rolling back since the, you know, the 70s of a lot of those restrictions and you had the growth of these giant banks and risk is everywhere. Mm. That 90s period, profoundly done by risk, extreme sports. Think of MTV's most popular shows, shows like Jackass, just stupid idiots doing stupid risky things and half of them are now probably like, you know, like they're all wounded. They're like they're like hobbling around like elderly people, these guys in there, you know, like because they did stupid things in the 90s. So it's a, it's a very risk aggressive, Silicon Valley startups, risk, risk at all. So that went into the financial system. And perhaps the financial system drove that risk. So it was all about risk, maximizing profits. And it's almost to hit its sort of apogee at this moment. And then you had this great banking crisis. And we came really close to sort of economic Armageddon. But one of the things that they did is they began to do stimulate the economy that happened here in Australia, where they started to stimulate the economy and they went into managing things to keep it the same. Mm-hmm. There's been crises before. The 1920s was a crisis. Uh, so the 1930s was a crisis, 29, with the Great Depression. The Spanish flu was a crisis. The wars were a crisis. And governments managed them. But there was almost this language of we're going to this crisis. We need this blitz spirit to fight this. Yes. You know, yeah, it's going to be hard, you know, but everyone pull up the bootstraps and help your neighbor. It's almost went to, no, everything's going to be okay. We're going to keep things exactly the same by doing extreme things. Yes. The extreme things they did was basically quantitative ease, which was this extreme form of modern monetary theory, which actually had come from Japan because Japan, the Bank of Japan had been doing that uh, as they began to hit stagnation. Again, J- Japan went ahead and then the rest of the world started to do this. So it's this way of like things are starting to unravel, but we, the elites, are going to justify our continued leading through making everything seem the same. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and maintaining that like environment of, of comfort and like we've talked about this before, yes. right? Comfort. We will appease you. It's okay. And, and you can also fine. see at the same time this is also happening and it happened a bit earlier, but you also have this sort of rise of the surveillance state and the security state after 9-11. Mm. So like we're going to keep everything fine. We're going to stop – any terrorist attacks happening, but we're going to do that by spying on you from your phones. And, and <laughs> you know, so, and we're going to have like security everywhere. And the airport now is like a complete hassle. So everything's fine, but it's not. So it's this weird dynamic of crises, even COVID, again, to a similar thing. Like we're going to go on a massive lockdown. Everything's going to be fine. We're going to give you stimulus checks to pay. Please go out and go to cafes, but you can only go from at this certain time. You're going to have the vice, you know, like, like this app. Fascinating sort of coming together of two things. Think about, even some of the human resources things now, you know, like trigger warnings in, in, in colleges to we're reading out these statements at the beginning of things, you know, like inclusivity statements and so on. In a sense, it's like going after things of justice, but it's doing it in this very managerial, bureaucratic way. It's mm-hmm. really, really interesting. So what begins to emerge in this crisis, crisis neoliberalism is a bizarre coming together of Hayek and Keynes. Mm-hmm. Hayek like high finance, trade, everyone's trading, vision of globalization, but then Keynes, the government sort of controlling. So in a sense now you've got the government. So one thing that happens in in 2008 is the government in the US, the US Fed begins to do some of its quantitative easing. And a lot of those funds are given to firms like JP Morgan. This is when Blackstone and BlackRock and these these big equity firms grow because they got to manage some of these sort of distressed assets. So you see the this giant 
big blob at the top of government and corporations beginning to get bigger and bigger. Just one example is Live Nation here. There's this big thing at the moment about tickets, and I think it was in the States before. It's going to be in the UK next. Taylor Swift coming out, this furore around who's going to get tickets and so on. Mm. It's not about Taylor Swift. This is about Live Nation, who has taken over and become monopolistic, partially owned by the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. Mm-hmm. Um, so just think about that. You, you, you're screaming teenagers trying to get, you know, paying $500 or something for a Taylor Swift ticket is sponsoring the Saudi regime. Uh, okay, I'll just drop that there. Um, <laughs> So, so, so you 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 have these giant entities like Live Nation has just bought up all the festivals around the world, all the Australian ones, the European ones, the American mm-hmm. ones. So you've got the rise of this giant entity, and I think the classic conservative thing has always been, oh, we're afraid of big government. The the uh, sort of the also the the sort of left thing is afraid of government interference in particular things and control over things and mm-hmm. security state and military military industrial complex. You got another thing too that people are con- afraid of. Uh, or the conservatives, particularly in the last few years, are c- afraid of uh, or concerned about the ways that you know woke companies and their sort of social agenda. So we've arrived in this situation, which is everyone's nightmare. <laughs> yep. It's 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 big government, big corporations, it's it's moral decri- decay, it's it's financial corruption decay all at the mm-hmm. same time. And I think what this is doing is this is filtering down into the individual. So you're seeing this sort of protest, the sort of protest votes of Brexit and and, and Trump. You're seeing then COVID comes along and we're in this really weird space where I think what is happening is there's this lack of asymmetry. Peter Berger talked about that the plausibility structures of a society have to, what the society is saying has to align with your lived reality. Mm-hmm. And increasingly what you're saying is the freedom entrepreneurial self-message of our neoliberal regime, as we've known it for the last 30 years, is increasingly at odds with the reality mm-hmm. of what's going on. You're seeing this at the moment. It's interesting in Australia. We're now winter here and you're seeing articles starting to appear about a lot of Australians are still doing well and they've benefited from the last 30 years and they can afford to go on a European holiday with the fact that the prices cost twice as much. Yeah. But in the same street, you've now got people who are going through a cost of living crisis. You've got friendship circles where 10 years ago this didn't matter, but you're hearing like, oh, we're going to go out to dinner. Actually, we can't afford that. Yeah, yeah. So you, this is going to grow. But I think what it's doing is creating a kind of crisis individualism, which is very different from the expressive, aspirational, uh, ego, you know, ego-driven, I want to say that, mm. uh, second individualism. And I don't think a lot of people have clocked on this, onto this. That's a lot of thoughts. I'll let you guys reflect on crisis individualism for a second. Okay, so, okay, well, can we just like distill it down a little bit? Yeah, yeah. What are the, the like, the three kind of markers, would you say, of yes. crisis individualism? Yes. Number one, the ubiquity of mental health talk. Mm-hmm. That mental health has gone from seeing as something which a small group of people have to something that is ubiquitous and almost felt by everyone. So people increasingly talk about mental health in terms of um, even in workplaces, I'm hearing this, mm. like that you had a bad experience that's that maybe didn't meet your expectations. That is a mental health challenge because it's affecting your mental health. You're hearing sports people talk about, you know, I, was, I wasn't on the team that affected my mental health. Now, mm. is there is there, a, there is a classic definition of mental health? Yes. Um, but you're seeing that expand mm-hmm. to this whole thing. Now, on the other side of that is there's a belief that we can, through government and others, can manage our mental health. A second thing is the outsourcing of the self. So interestingly, outsourcing was a big part of neoliberalism, outsourcing manufacturing to China or manufacturing to Mexico or whatever. But increasingly then you're seeing, and, and Tim Ferriss wrote a book called The 4-Hour Workweek, which is sort of a productivity hack book, um, where he just said outsource all these tasks like, you know, your shopping list or something to someone in India. But increasingly you're seeing this, this like, oh, I need someone to help me with this or I have this condition. You're seeing this increased demand for people to outsource 
in a sense, things that are, are wrong or going mm. wrong with themselves, conditions and so on, to the point where our national disability insurance scheme, the NDIS here in Australia, is actually saying, well, we can't deal with in the future people who have what they're calling psychosocial conditions, of yeah. anxiety or low-level anxiety or social anxiety. Yeah. Um, the third thing I would say is a general lack of hope. Mm. Concern about the environment, the future not looking good. You're seeing that in real world terms. That one of the biggest things that may even hit us uh, very soon is is a lack of a demographic cliff that we're falling off. Um, because there's a lot of people like I don't believe in the future enough to have kids. Yes, um, and that's huge. Of Japan, Japanese Prime Minister President, you know, I think I've talked about this before. Said recently, Japan's going to become. Uh, almost dysfunctional within a few years because they don't have enough people to run the trains and yes. run the air traffic controllers. Um, so you're seeing a general fear about the world, uh, plague, famine, pestilence, war, mm. you know, all of these things. And the tone is no longer – like people talk about progressive politics, but you go back to the yes, we can Obama moment. Uh, that – was I think a high point that we didn't realize at the time that people are coming down from that yeah. the world can change a generation's emerging to the world all this stuff's happened the world can change also Mervyn King the the former chief of the Bank of England called it the nice period that no inflation constant expansion that's gone inflation's back things costs we're starting to discover the real costs of things we're not being subsidized by China or people uh, anymore in the way that we used to things have a cost now. And so I think it's the return of a lack of hope and, wow, life's hard. Mm. And that is changing um, the tone in the culture. Um, also an increased reality. I think the nice period, um, the last 30-year period, also in a sense, and I'll get into this more. I think maybe I'll do a whole one on this, but it depoliticized things. So mm. issues of racism or oppression were not spoken about in the way and then it was almost like they were pushed down and then all of a sudden that lid, which was keeping them down, and maybe the lid was like, hey, don't worry about it because we can all go and buy new sneakers at the new mall, <laughs> which is just open down the corner. Yeah. That's gone now. Mm. And so all of a sudden this repression of talking about stuff that we should have been talking about, that lid's been taken off and now everything's politicized. Yes. So the whole of culture is politicized because it's a, it's a reaction to what happened earlier. And so the general tone of uh, the culture is changed from one of second – almost aspirational individualism to now crisis individualism. Yeah. Can, and can I drop – Can I? I'll, we're <laughs> bumping up on the hour, <laughs> yeah. but I want to just drop this final thought. Sure. What if that means we need to change tact? Mm. What if that means that a bit of life hacks and don't pick up your phone in the morning and, hey, listen, I talked a lot about win the day <laughs> and not looking at my phone early in the morning and, you know, and, and trying to like – Craft a life where you do different productivity things to ensure that you're not being formed by the world and being formed by Christ. What if that sort of spiritual formation, what if in a sense there's an element where we're now in a new era where people are actually being exploited? Okay. And they're in crisis because the model of the world has exploited them. I think I'll talk about that more next time. But what if then the answer in discipleship mm. is you're not so much dealing with like here's better formational um, content, here's better patterns of formation. What if it's actually now about deliverance from a system which is actually exploiting people and robbing them of hope and is is now a system that's in is, is moving into a significant crisis as a culture yeah. Yeah. And um, before when we were preparing for this episode, you kind of used the, the image of Exodus. Yes. Um, of the Israelites in, in Egypt. Mm. Um, yes. And that's kind of what you're saying. Yes. For this, this uh, I was about to say generation, but I should say order. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So much covered there. Is there anything else you'd like to comment on there, Daniel, before we finish up? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so much to, to take away and process, um, yeah. which I think would be good for all of us to, mm. to consider and, and what's God mm. speaking in the midst of it all. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I just uh, like reflecting on that, that third kind of dot point that you mentioned with the sort of the typical things of what you're seeing with crisis individualism. You've got the ubiquity of mental health talk, the outsourcing of self, but finally that general lack of hope and 
I wonder, you know, thinking about this with in light of, you know, uh, talking to Robin Lim last week with about what the Asbury outpouring was like and, you know, what we've been experiencing here mm. locally at Red Church, but we know so many churches across the world uh, are experiencing new moves of God and this flavour that comes with it is this hope, mm. this renewed hope in mm. in his goodness and his mercy and his mm. um and his desire to to grow and build and love his church mm. um, and make her new again. So, yeah, I'm excited to see how that emerges. Well, what if crisis individualism leads to renewed individuals? Because crisis leads to renewal. Oh, did you just come up with that then? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I like it. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be continuing to explore and unpack some of these ideas um, in coming episodes. But, yeah, we'll, we'll see you next time. Uh, just a reminder, if you that there, there were a lot of authors mentioned in today's episode. If uh, you want to get a list of uh, the books that Mark was referring to during that episode or during this episode, uh, we send out a list of them in our subscriber chats to our mailing list. So if you're not part of our mailing list, you can easily join by heading to rebuilders.co and signing up there and we send out the email a number of days after our episode is released. So, yeah. See you next time. Bye.